Hello, and welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Simon Carley, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk about the management of traumatic cardiac arrest with an old friend and colleague of mine, Jason Smith. Jason, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. Fantastic. Um, we've known each other for a very long period of time, I think, going back to teaching things like MIMS courses back in the, gosh, was it as long ago? It was the early 90s, I think. Yeah, certainly 20 years ago. Crikey. But our paths have gone in different directions. Um, I'm now in Manchester, as people probably know. You're down in the south of England. I am. Uh, I'm based in Plymouth, so I work in Derriford Hospital in Plymouth. And I also hold an academic appointment at the Royal Centre for Defence Medicine in Birmingham. And you're a military man yourself, you're in the Navy? I am indeed. I'm in the Royal Navy and have been for 27 years. That's really important for the topic that we're going to be talking about today, because over the last decade, probably, but certainly in the last few years when the data has been coming out, you've had a real interest in the management of severe trauma, and in particular, the management of those patients who present with trauma cardiac arrest. And I think over that period of time, you've really slain some ideas that were in the, the literature and in the zeitgeist of emergency medicine in the past about this being a futile effort. So I thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about where you've come to now and then maybe get onto some really interesting research that you've just done to try and put some science into, well, what's been a lot of anecdotes in the past. So how did you get into this? Well, as you know, traumatic cardiac arrest is uncommon in the UK. So uh, each one of us probably sees traumatic cardiac arrest relatively unfrequently. If you take Plymouth, for example, we see a patient in traumatic cardiac arrest maybe once a month, once every two months, and we are a major trauma centre. So each individual clinician in the emergency department isn't going to see this very often. A few years ago, when I was deployed in Afghanistan, the picture was very different. So we were very busy and we were seeing a patient in traumatic cardiac arrest maybe every other day. So we were seeing three or four a week. And the same team of clinicians were dealing with those patients as they came through the door. So we got very used to dealing with patients in traumatic cardiac arrest and looked around for what we should be doing for these patients. Uh, and it's important to bear in mind that the majority of those patients in traumatic cardiac arrest, because of the mechanism of injury, had hemorrhagic traumatic cardiac arrest. So their pathophysiological mechanism was primarily hemorrhage. So obviously your experience in Iraq was was defining in this way. I think in Virchester, where I work in Manchester, we're seeing, well, at the, at the moment, we're seeing about one traumatic cardiac arrest a week. So we're, we're not in a great way at the moment up here. But there is something about this idea that if you're seeing things on a frequent basis, it's easier. But even in my world and in, in your world, we're not seeing it on a regular basis. And that that's always been an area where we've tried to protocolize, where we've tried to standardize and tried to train. Is that something that you've been advocating in your part of the world and with the military? Yes, absolutely. We developed our own bundle of life-saving interventions or bundle of care for the management of these patients that seemed to work. And we were getting better outcomes than was reported in the literature. And so we had trained our trauma teams in delivering this bundle of care. Everyone was very much singing off the same hymn sheet. There were no questions and everyone knew the next step in the algorithm of management for these patients. And we brought that back into our civilian practice in the UK. Lots of us work in different uh, major trauma centres and trauma units in the UK. And that work has been disseminated throughout. 
So just remind me, what is this package? Give me the highlights of the package. If somebody's, you're in the emergency department, the call goes up, you're getting somebody who you think is probably a traumatic cardiac arrest as a result of bleeding. They're on their way in and they've only just arrested. So they're, you know, they're minutes away from the emergency department. What is the package of care that you're briefing your team on? Say, this is what we're going to do. So the package of care involves firstly, external hemorrhage control. So in the context of patients coming into a field hospital in Afghanistan, ensuring that if tourniquets are applied, that they're working properly and other external hemorrhage control measures, then ensuring oxygenation and ventilation, and that may involve intubation, having people pre-positioned to perform bilateral thoracostomies, so decompressing the chest on both sides, and then ensuring rapid volume replacement, either intravenously or intraosseously if intravenous access isn't possible uh, with warm blood and blood products. And then in blunt trauma patients, apply a pelvic binder to close the pelvis and consider thoracotomy in an appropriate group of patients. Okay, we might come back to that, but I think what's important in your description then is where that thinking takes place. And this is something we we train um, hard on in Manchester, is that all of those decisions about what you're going to do are essentially made before the patient arrives at the door. And I'm right in thinking that. Yeah, absolutely. So when the patient arrives, you've got this rapid um, institution of intervention so that they happen. And that would be applicable to an advanced pre-hospital team as well, I guess. Yes, absolutely. You, you may not have access to rapid volume replacement with blood products in the pre-hospital environment, depending on what environment you work in and what equipment you have available. So, for example, the rapid infusion devices that, that we tend to use is a Belmont, and that's able to deliver warmed blood products uh, very rapidly to a patient who requires them. Yeah, we've just gone on to the Belmont, actually, and it's a, it's a nice bit of kit, but I can see how that would be. It doesn't really translate well into, into all environments, but in hospital, it's great. So patient comes in, you're going to do these interventions and you're going to see what happened. Now, when I trained, which obviously is a bit similar to the time that you trained, the impression was and the feeling was that the outcomes from traumatic cardiac arrest are, are appalling. You might get the occasional stabbing victim back if they've been stabbed in the chest and only if they've really had a right ventricular single stab wound and that blunt trauma is a futile effort and you should stop wasting your time and not bother. Now, more recently, you published some data from Afghanistan and I think there's other data out there in the literature increasingly now, some of which we've covered on the blog, which really challenges that view. Yes. So if you look at outcomes from the military population in Iraq and Afghanistan, then uh, it's about a 10.6% survival. Now, bear in mind that there are specific pathophysiological mechanisms that affect the military population that may not be affecting our civilian patients. So we then went and looked at the civilian population. So from the TARN database in the UK, even when you take into account the, the proportion of patients with blunt trauma, there was still a 7.5% survival. So resuscitation of patients in traumatic cardiac arrest is no longer futile, and hopefully we've proven that. It's not actually a million miles away from the success rates from non-traumatic cardiac arrest, in fact. Absolutely. So they're, they're very similar rates. And if you think about the attitude of clinicians and the investment in terms of education that goes into the management of non-traumatic cardiac arrest, I think we should be putting more effort into educating our hospital teams in particular and our pre-hospital teams in the management of traumatic cardiac arrest. 
And I think there's another paper with, I can't remember all the authors, but certainly Ed Barnard, who is um, also a Navy chap and um, a great researcher in this area, which shows that I think in the East, Engl- East of England, there are really quite high rates of success, similar sort of rates of success with traumatic cardiac arrest out there as well. So it does seem, and I think you were telling me before we started the podcast, that anecdotally, we're now increasingly meeting people who've seen patients with blunt traumatic cardiac arrest and penetrating cardiac arrest who say, well, yeah, I've had some survivors now. We, we seem to be getting more and more anecdotal stuff coming around. And it seems to be that this is a very positive and exciting area for us to practice in. Yes, absolutely. We've got to the idea that basically the idea that this is futile is not true. We've got a package of care. We know what's going to go on. We've certainly got that initial management to see if we're going to get um, a return to spontaneous circulation. And then we're going to move on to specific interventions, depending on what we think the underlying anatomical physiological insult is that we can recover from. So we've got that. I understand that. But there are still some controversies, and that's where I wanted to get us to at this point. And one of them, and, and you didn't mention it in your initial package, is around whether or not to do closed chest compressions in this group of patients. So in the exsanguinated cardiac arrest, traumatic cardiac arrest patients, the standard of care under ALS, because it doesn't really differentiate, is that you will have somebody or something, if you've got a Lucas device, pumping up and down on the chest and managing them according to an ALS type process. So chest compressions, intubation ventilation, and increasingly debatable, increasingly controversial, of course, inotropes like intermittent adrenaline or adrenaline infusions. And I just wondered what you thought about, let's, let's, take, the, let's take the easy stuff first. Let's take the adrenaline infusions. What, what do you think the role of, of giving adrenaline is in this group of patients? So if you take the group of patients who have hemorrhage-induced traumatic cardiac arrest, they will have been maximally vasoconstricted. Their adrenals will be pushing out every last ounce of adrenaline and they will be maximally affected by those catecholamines such that giving exogenous catecholamines on top of that, so giving intravenous adrenaline, I don't think makes sense. I haven't got any evidence to support that in patients with traumatic cardiac arrest, but from a a physiological perspective, I just don't buy the rationale that giving intravenous adrenaline every three to five minutes in this form of cardiac arrest is appropriate. Now, interesting that I actually failed a sim session about 15 years ago because I didn't give adrenaline to the patient with bleeding out from the pelvis, but let's not go there. I'm still really bitter about it, but I agree with you. And one of the arguments that people sometimes come back with me is, well, if you give a bit more adrenaline, it's not going to do any harm. Well, maybe, but every time you do something which isn't of value, you're not doing something which potentially is of value. So there's an opportunity cost with these things. And that's, that's another thing which we find a lot coming out in our resuscitation practice. Uh, that's essentially the reason why we started investigating closed chest compressions in traumatic cardiac arrest. So if you go back to the situation where we're delivering a package of care to a patient in hemorrhage-induced traumatic cardiac arrest, one of the elements of that package of care is to get large ball venous access and institute rapid infusion of blood and blood products. So there we were delivering blood and blood products into a patient via a Belmont rapid infusion device, but the device kept alarming. So the device was telling us that the pressure inside the thorax during chest compressions was too high to deliver the rapid infusion of blood and blood products. So like all good research questions, this originated on the shop floor. We were standing around a patient in traumatic cardiac arrest. And what we were trying to do, i.e. deliver the bundle of care that we'd already identified was the priority. We weren't able to do 
because of another intervention. The actual chest compressions were inhibiting you from getting what you truly believe is pathophysiologically the right thing to do to actually getting it done. Yeah, and I hesitate to quote anecdote in this evidence-based podcast, but that's what it felt like. So the Belmont kept alarming as chest compressions were ongoing. As soon as we stopped chest compressions, the rapid infusion was allowed to happen. Really interesting stuff. And I think that's 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 a key point. Can I just take a little sideline at this point? Can I just ask, what are you using for access for your rapid infusion? You said intraosseous. If you're going intravascularly, are you going centrally? Are you going subclavian or are you using peripheral lines? So there's no reason why you shouldn't use peripheral lines if there are peripheral lines there. So if you've got a grey cannula in the antecubital fossa, there's no reason why you shouldn't use that. If you've got a patient with severe injuries and they've got severe limb injuries, then your peripheral options may be limited. So as standard care in the military environment, we have someone pre-positioned to put a right subclavian trauma line in. And that seemed to answer all the questions, particularly given the patients with peripheral limb injuries. Okay, so let's just whiz back to the closed chest compressions again. So you've got this research question in your head. And there was a debate going on, wasn't there? There were some people saying, well, again, you know, we've got to pump something around. What if you're wrong? And other people saying, well, actually, it's harmful potentially, and it may make outcomes worse. But we don't really know. And quite frankly, there's never going to be a pragmatic RCT on this because the numbers are too small. So what did you do? How did you approach this? So I came back to the UK uh, and essentially asked the question of some of my colleagues at DSTL Porton Down as to whether we could develop an animal model that would answer this question. And thankfully, they were engaged with the project and helped to put things together. So we designed a trial that was an animal model of traumatic cardiac arrest to try to as closely mimic what was happening in the resuscitation room as possible. Because as you say, it wasn't possible to do a randomized controlled trial in this context. So we developed an animal model of traumatic cardiac arrest using a swine model. We instituted traumatic cardiac arrest using a combined tissue injury and hemorrhage model, again, to try to replicate the patient group that we were seeing most frequently. And that's quite important that you do have the combined injury, isn't it? Because I remember from some of the early work on hemorrhage, that if you have a pure blood loss, a no soft tissue injury, you actually get a very different physiological response to that trauma. So having the combination of the two is important. And then the pigs that you've got, I think you divided them up into several different groups, quite small numbers, but that's that's quite common in an experimental trial like this. It, small numbers, which are very tightly controlled, is the way forward in this kind of experimental model. Yes, that's right. So uh, after the injury, We held them in a shock phase for 60 minutes. So we had bled them to loss of 30% blood volume and then held them in a shock phase where their mean arterial pressure was around 60 millimetres of mercury for about 60 minutes. And that was meant to simulate the pre-hospital retrieval period of the patient's pathway. And then after 60 minutes, we bled them further down to a mean arterial pressure of 20 to simulate traumatic cardiac arrest. So just remind me, because I don't know a lot about pigs, what's the normal blood pressure of a pig? It's very similar to a human. So you can translate the blood pressure of a pig almost exactly to what you would expect a blood pressure of a human. 
Okay, so similar sort of numbers in my head. So I've got that. We're bleeding them down to this level. So they're not in asystolic cardiac arrest at this stage. You're bleeding them down to a level where they've still got cardiac activity, but there's so little blood in the system that their pressures are just vanishingly low. That's correct. So in an equivalent human model, you wouldn't be able to feel a radial pulse. You wouldn't be able to feel a central pulse. And indeed, you couldn't feel a central pulse on these animals. But because of the arterial line, we had an invasive monitoring that we had in this animal model. We were able to see the the arterial pressure holding at around 20 millimetres of mercury. Okay. So again, a little aside there, really good learning point that the patient that you see in your department who you may think is in cardiac arrest may just actually be having a very limited cardiac output, but you can't detect it through means such as pulse checks, which we know are a bit rubbish anyway. So then you take them to that point, you simulate the cardiac arrest, and then you try and resuscitate them, but in different ways. That's right. So these animals were then randomized at that point to five different groups. So group one was closed chest compressions alone, and those closed chest compressions were delivered by a Lucas 2 device. Group two was intravenous blood alone, delivered at 10 mils per kilo in three boluses. Group three were intravenous normal saline. Group four were intravenous blood combined with closed chest compressions. And then group five were intravenous saline and closed chest compressions. So what we were trying to do was unpick the different effects of each intervention by having each intervention alone and then a combination of the intravenous fluid intervention plus chest compressions. So the key group in terms of the idea which underpinned this was your group two, wasn't it, who just got blood, but without chest compressions? Yes, that's right. So the secondary question here was, is blood as a resuscitation fluid in traumatic cardiac arrest better than saline? It's always difficult to present data on a podcast in, in any great detail, but just summarise the main findings. What was what were the key messages that you took away from this? Because it was pretty clear from the data that was shared on Twitter that that second group, the group that got blood, did quite well. Yeah, that's right. So the primary outcome for this study was the endpoint at 15 minutes after the cessation of resuscitation. So what we were trying to simulate there was... A patient had had come into the emergency department. Uh, They'd arrived in the resuscitation room and got the initial period of resuscitation. But then for meaningful outcome, we wanted the animals or the patients to survive for 15 minutes after cessation of resuscitation so that we could get them to an operating theatre to institute damage control surgery if necessary in this patient group. And couple of things that came out of this. One is what's the best way, if you like, which is, it seems to be that those who got the best ROSC were definitely in the group who just got blood and no closed chest compressions. But there was also some signal there about whether chest compressions themselves might actually be harmful as opposed to not really very effective. Yes. So to summarise the results, all the patients or the animals that received chest compressions alone were dead at the end of the study. All the patients or animals that received intravenous blood alone were alive at the end of the study. Some of them had partial return of spontaneous circulation, so defined as a mean arterial pressure between 20 and 60, but most of them actually had a mean arterial pressure of greater than 50 at the end of the study period. And then when you combine the two, so in group four, 
the group that received chest compressions and intravenous blood, what we found was at the end of resuscitation, many of those animals actually had intermediate return of spontaneous circulation. So they had a blood pressure between 20 and 50. And what we found was that translated because the definition meant that we didn't continue chest compressions in that group for the next 15 minutes, many of those animals that had intermediate ROSC then developed full ROSC, i.e. their mean arterial pressure rose to above 50 by the end of the study period. So by not doing chest compressions, I think what we're doing is almost artificially elevating the survival in group four, those that received intravenous blood and chest compressions on top. So that's really interesting. So it does appear in this study, at least, that there's harm as well as lack of u- lack of utility for the uh, chest compressions. Now, there's going to be caveats with any of these studies. It's pigs. There weren't that many of them. The endpoint is ROSC and not uh, full neurological outcome, which, of course, is what we would like in any study of uh, cardiac arrest management. And it didn't include patients with asystole and it was a fairly uniform type of arrest. Now, those aren't criticisms as such, because that's what you did, but they are observations. It then then asks of us, can we translate this into human practice? Or do we need more evidence? Or is this about as good as we're ever going to get? So I think this is probably as good as we're going to get for the moment. We set out to answer a very specific question about the effects of closed chest compressions on an animal model of hemorrhage-induced traumatic cardiac arrest. And I think we've answered that question quite clearly. Chest compressions are not effective and, in fact, may well be harmful when compared with intravenous blood alone. So I think we've answered the question as well as we can answer it in this context. Is it transferable into our clinical practice? Well, that depends on the patient group that you're dealing with. So if you have a patient with traumatic cardiac arrest and the pathophysiological mechanism is as yet undefined, then it's up to you as the senior clinician on the shop floor how you manage that patient. But if there's evidence that hemorrhage is the primary pathophysiological mechanism, then the key element of the resuscitation bundle is replacement of that volume, preferably with blood and blood products. So I think that's really interesting, a nice little summary. There's a good talk coming up from SMAC, actually, by Caroline Leach, who we both know very well from the Midlands, talking about mimics in traumatic cardiac arrest, things like impact brain apnea, things about patients who've had a myocardial infarction and then crashed the car. And I'm sure, well, I've certainly seen many of those, and I'm sure you've seen some too. So you've got to be careful about not doing it. But in the circumstances you describe, it does seem to be the right thing to do. Although, I don't know what your experience is when you started doing this. It's sometimes quite difficult to carry the team because sometimes the team's automatic assumption is cardiac arrest equals chest compressions. And particularly when people arrive, you sometimes get some strange looks on your faces. Yes, they're in arrest. No, we're not doing this. I'm not sure how you... I mean, that's about training, I guess. You've probably addressed this in your sim and shop floor teaching already. Yeah, I completely agree. So... If you haven't discussed this beforehand, you haven't trained for this scenario, then it's very difficult to carry the team with you if you decide not to do chest compressions in a patient in cardiac arrest. But as you say, training is all important. And if you train in a simulated environment using patients in traumatic cardiac arrest with different pathophysiological mechanisms, then hopefully we can illustrate that this is one big puzzle. And hopefully this study and the findings of this study is one piece of the puzzle that you can use to inform your decision. 
certainly what we're not saying is that chest compressions are inappropriate in all patients in traumatic cardiac arrest. As you point out, there are a group of patients who have medical arrest and then suffer trauma. And the management of those patients is necessarily different to those patients who, for example, are injured in a military context through explosion or gunshot wound when their primary pathophysiological mechanism is hemorrhage. Excellent. So we'll bring that to a close now, if that's okay, Jason. Thank you so much for your time and and for your insights. And thanks for taking what I think, do you know what? I think 99% of people would have looked at that problem and gone, do you know what? We're never going to get an answer to it. We'll just do what we think is right. So I think putting some science into the argument has been fantastic. I'll be catching up with you soon in London, I believe. And there's some conferences later in the year at the conference for the uh, annual scientific meeting of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, which I believe you're putting the programme together for. Yes, that's right. And thank you very much for inviting me to come and contribute to St. Emlyn's. It's uh, a great honour to to contribute. And hopefully, as you say, this gives some scientific background to what we do on the shop floor. I'm going to apologise for the occasional beep, which I think is my computer playing up. Um, we've got some lovely sound of seagulls at your end, so I guess you are <laughs> at home. I'm at home in Plymouth. That's correct. And it's very difficult to shut the seagulls up. Normally we have Natalie May and she has sort of... Uh, all sorts of exotic birds from Australia. So maybe there's a theme in St. Emelands that we'll have more avian themes as we go forward. But thanks once again for your time and we will speak to you soon. That's a pleasure. Good to speak to you, Sam. 